0: welcome to the all of christ for all of life podcast presented by canon press this week's episode is chapter one of a house for my name a survey of the old testament by peter j Lighthart. follow along with us as we read through this old testament survey in the bible section on the canon app chapter one book of beginnings the bible tells one story It is a long and complicated story about events that took place over several thousand years, but even so, it is one story. Like most good stories, the most exciting and important parts come toward the end. In this case, the most important part comes when Jesus is born, lives, dies on the cross, rises again, and ascends to heaven. But to know why Jesus comes and what he is doing when he dies and rises again, we need to know the story that goes before. A man kisses a sleeping woman in a wood, and she wakes. That's a nice ending to a story, but if we don't know the woman is Sleeping Beauty and the man is Prince Philip, then we don't know the story very well. A beginning is nothing without an ending, but an ending without a beginning isn't worth much either. To tell the story of Jesus, we need to start with Genesis, the first book in the Bible, a book whose name means beginnings. Three-story house. Genesis 1-1-2-4 The Bible's story begins by telling us about the world where the story takes place. In the Bible, the world is the real world that we live in, the world that God created. But the Bible describes the world in a particular way. In some places, the Bible describes it as a house. Talking to Job from the whirlwind, Yahweh asks, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you know understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Job 38, 4 7. Earth, and especially mountains, are set on foundations. Deuteronomy 32, 22. 2 Samuel 22, 8, 16. Psalm 104, 5. Just like the foundations that hold up a house. Blue sky is stretched out above like a tent curtain. Isaiah 40, 22. Pillars support the earth, Job 9, 6, and heaven, Job 26, 11. When God first appears in the Bible, he is building a house. God makes his house through his word and spirit. All three persons of God are working to build his house. The Father speaks and things are made. He says, let there be light and there is light. Other places in the Bible, we learn that the word that makes the world is the word that is God. John 1, 1-5. And this word becomes man in Jesus. The Spirit is mentioned too in Genesis 1-2. The Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. What does the Spirit look like when He hovers over the waters? In other places in Scripture, we learn that the Spirit makes His appearance looking like a cloud that sometimes glows with light. The cloud that leads Israel out of the wilderness is the Spirit. He hovers over Israel as He hovered over the waters to make a new creation. Deuteronomy 32:11. Later this same glory cloud appears in the most holy place of the tabernacle and temple of Israel. and much later the Spirit hovers in the form of a dove at Jesus baptism, Matthew 3:16. Because in Jesus God is again making the world new. It takes God six days to build his house, six days that are just like our days, with the sun coming up in the morning and going down in the evening. After that, God rests on the seventh day, a day known as the Sabbath day. During the first three days, God makes a three story house by dividing one thing from another. On the first day, He divides light and darkness. On the second, He divides waters in heaven from waters on earth and puts the sky or firmament in between. And on the third day, He divides the waters on the earth to make the dry land and the sea. The next three days, He fills up the three stories of His house. On the fourth day, he puts the sun, moon, and stars in the sky to fill up daytime and nighttime. On the fifth day, he creates birds to fly across the sky and fish to swim in the waters. On the sixth day, he makes atom and animals that live on land. What's interesting is that the first three days match the second three days. Dividing, day one, light, dark, day two, waters above, below. Day three, waters land. Filling, day four, sun, moon, and stars. Day five, birds and fish. Day six, land animals and man. Day seven, Sabbath. And so, at the end of the six days of creation, God has finished a three-story house. Above is the tent curtain of blue sky, then the dry land, and finally the waters below the earth. The Bible mentions this three-story house many times. In the second commandment, God forbids us to bow down to an image of anything in, quote, heaven above, or the earth beneath, or in the waters under the earth, Exodus 24. That means we must not bow down to images of anything. Heaven, earth, and sea means the whole universe. Sometimes when the Bible mentions the three-story house, it's not as obvious as it is in the second commandment. In Psalm 77, 16-18, for example, we read, The waters saw thee, O God. The waters saw thee. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. The arrows went here and there. The sound of thy thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Each story of the house is mentioned. When the Lord appears, the waters tremble and shake with anguish. The Hebrew word for anguish can refer to the pain of a woman who is having a baby. When the Lord comes, the waters thrash about like a woman in labor. Then the psalm describes the sky. God comes riding on clouds that are like a chariot, rumbling with thunder, and flashing with arrows of lightning. God is coming on the scene like a great warrior entering a battle. Finally, the earth trembled and shook at the coming of the Lord. Waters, sky, and earth. God comes, and the whole house begins to shake. When we read this psalm, it sounds like the world is breaking apart. But that's not what the psalm is talking about. Instead, it's talking about an event that happened in the Old Testament. At the end of the psalm, we read this. Thy way was in the sea, and thy paths in the mighty waters, and thy footprints may not be known. Thou didst lead thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron, verses 19-20. through The psalm is talking about Israel's exodus through the Red Sea, but it describes it as something that makes the whole universe tremble. Asaph, who wrote the psalm, is telling us that the Exodus is a world-shaking event. We think that World War II is a big event, but the Psalm says that the Exodus is even bigger. When Israel is brought out of Egypt, the whole world trembles, and when God shakes the world, it means that God is making a new world, Hebrews 12, 26-27. In the Exodus, the cloud and whirlwind hover over the waters as the Spirit hovers over the waters at creation, Genesis 1-2. Out of the anguish of the waters, a new Israel, and a new world is born. Sometimes the Bible talks about a nation or empire as if it were the three-story house. Each nation is a world. Like the creation, a nation is built on pillars. In Hannah's prayer at the birth of Samuel, she looks forward to what the Lord is going to do in Israel. He raises the poor from dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. 1 Samuel 2.8 Here, the pillars of the earth are pillars that hold up the house of Israel. See Psalm 75.3 Nobles and other important people are the pillars of Israel. But in Hannah's day, the pillars are wicked men. Hannah looks forward to a time when the evil pillars will be torn down and the righteous will be set up as columns. Two decades later, samson tears down the pillars of the temple of dagon and in the process destroys most of the columns of the nation of philistia judges sixteen twenty-three 31 when samson brings down the house of dagon he also brings down the house of philistia hannah it seems has good reason to hope that the pillars will be shaken so the world is a house and each nation is also a house And this is why the Bible sometimes seems to be talking about the fall of the universe when it's talking about the fall of a nation. The plagues are attacks on the three-story house of Egypt. There are ten plagues, with the killing of the firstborn as the climax. The first nine are arranged in three sets of three plagues. All references are to Exodus. First cycle. Water, Nile to blood. Land, frogs. Sky, gnats. Second cycle. Water. Flies. By water. 8.20. Land. Pestilence. Land animals. Sky. Boils. 9.8. Third cycle. Water. Hail. Ice. Land. Locusts. 10.5. Sky. Darkness. Sky. Egypt's water, land, and sky are being shaken until Egypt falls to the ground. Sometimes the Bible focuses attention on only one of the floors of the three-story house. Sun, moon, and stars, which are set in the upper room of the universe, often picture rulers and kings. Already in Genesis 1.16, the heavenly bodies are described as governing the day and night. Isaiah the prophet talks about the sun, moon, and stars falling from the sky. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate its sinners from it, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light; the sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Isaiah thirteen nine through ten. Like Psalm seventy seven, it sounds as if Isaiah is talking about the end of the world, and he is in a sense. But the world that's coming to an end is Babylon. Isaiah 13, 1 not the whole universe. What Isaiah describes as the fall of the heavens is a prophecy of the collapse of Babylon as a heavenly power. Very often the land pictures Israel and the sea pictures the nations. See Psalm 46, 1-3, 65, 7-8. Isaiah talks about Assyria as an overflowing river that threatens Judah. The people of Judah have to decide between two rivers. Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoice in Rezin, king of Aram, and the son of Ramaliah, Pekah of Israel. Now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and mighty waters of the Euphrates River, and the king of Assyria, and all his glory. And it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. Then it will sweep on into Judah, and it will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck, and the spread of its wings will be the fullness of the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Isaiah 8, 6-8. Yahweh is the river whose streams make glad the city of God, Psalm 46, 4. But Judah has rejected these waters, trusting in Aram and Israel for protection from Assyria. Because they have rejected the Lord's living water, the Lord will let the Euphrates overflow and engulf Judah. God is turning back creation, as he did in Noah's flood. Instead of separating land and water, the water is now going to overflow the land. Jeremiah also compares the sea to Gentile nations when he warns Judah that Babylon is coming to destroy her. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor, is a sea monster who swallows up the Lord's people, Jeremiah 51:34 35 But the Lord will not allow Babylon to overflow his people forever. Behold, I am going to plead your case and exact full vengeance for you, and I shall dry up her sea and make her fountain dry, verse 36. Though once a sea herself, Babylon will be overcome by the sea. The sea has come up over Babylon. She has been engulfed with its tumultuous waves. Verse 42. This flood strangely turns Babylon into a parched land and a desert, a land in which no man lives. Though the Gentile sea monster has swallowed Judah, the Lord promises to punish Bel, a Babylonian god, in Babylon, and I shall make what he has swallowed come out of his mouth and the nations will no longer stream to him, verse 44. The Lord is going to make Babylon vomit Israel back onto the land. When God finishes building his house, it is good, Genesis 1, 4, 10, 18, 21, etc. But he doesn't want the house to stay exactly as it is. He makes a good house, but he wants it to get better and better. In the next section, we'll see how, instead of getting better and better, his first house is spoiled. Review questions. 1. How is the world like a house? 2. How do the first three days of creation match the second three days? 3. What are the stories of God's three-story house? 4. What is Psalm 77 talking about? Why does it describe this event as if it were the end of the world? 5. How does Hannah's song compare Israel to a house? 6 what do the sun, moon, and stars represent? What is Isaiah talking about when he describes heavenly bodies falling from the sky? 7. What does the land often represent? What is the sea? 8. How does Isaiah describe the Assyrian invasion of Judah? 9. How does Jeremiah describe Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon? Thought questions. 1. What does Psalm 82.5 mean by the foundations of the earth? 2. Compare Genesis 1-2 and Genesis 8-1. Note that the word for spirit is the same as the word for wind. In light of this, explain what's happening in Genesis 8-1. 3. Notice the references to the three-story house in Revelation 8, 1-13. Notice also that there are seven trumpets being sounded. Explain how this connects to Genesis 1. 4. Why is it significant that Noah's Ark has three levels? Genesis 6, 16. Five, if the land pictures Israel, what do land animals represent? Look at Psalm 77, 20 and 81. Junior Architects, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, 2, 1 through 25 and 6 through 9. Once God has made his three-story house, he puts Adam and Eve in it and gives them a job to do. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God makes Adam and Eve in his image and likeness. An image is a copy, and Adam and Eve are created to be like God. As God is king of the whole creation, so Adam is to be king of the animals and birds, with Eve the queen at his side. Being like God also means that Adam is supposed to work as God works. As we have already learned, God builds the creation as his house, and Adam, as the image of God, is also to be a builder. This is what God intends when he says that Adam should be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1.28 Adam's job is to subdue and rule. The word subdue is especially interesting. In the Old Testament, the same word is used to describe victory in a war as when David subdues his enemies. And the word also means subduing someone to slavery. See Jeremiah 34, 11, 16, 2 Chronicles 28, 10. When God creates the world, it is all good. So Adam does not have to subdue wicked enemies. Still, Adam has to work hard to subdue the world. Even before Adam sins, it is not easy to rule creation. Animals need training. Trees are tough to cut. The earth is hard to dig and rocks are hard to break. By working hard, Adam is to make creation a slave. He is supposed to find new ways to use what God has made, so that the whole creation serves man more and more. In Genesis 4.22, we learn that Cain is the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. He is the first to enslave the metals that God has created and make them useful. Today, thousands of years later, we are still learning new ways to subdue creation. Of course, Adam's job is not only to make the world more useful for him, but also to make the world more pleasing to God. God does not want Adam simply to have children. He wants Adam to have faithful, godly children who worship and serve him. God does not want Adam to use iron to hurt other people. He wants Adam to use iron to make useful tools and musical instruments. Adam is the king of the world, but he is always a servant to a higher king. If Adam subdues the world as God commands, he will be building a house for God within the house that God has built for him. When Adam is first created, he is put in the Garden of Eden. The garden is one of several different areas that God makes in the world. Remember that God initially makes a three-story world. In Genesis 2, we learn that the middle floor, earth, is divided into three rooms. The garden is only one of them. Genesis 2.8 tells us that the Lord God plants a garden toward the east in Eden which means that the garden is on the east side of the land of Eden. Eden is larger than the garden, and outside Eden, there were other lands, which are named in Genesis 2, 11-13. If Adam had taken time on the first day to make a map, he would have drawn a map with several areas, the garden, the land of Eden, and the larger world. It is interesting to notice how these three rooms of earth match up with the three stories of the universe. To see fully how this works, another portion of creation has to be considered, namely the firmament. Made on the second day of creation, Genesis 1:6). the firmament is not just the flat surface of the sky, but the whole region that we call outer space. We know this because the sun, moon, and stars are in the firmament, Genesis 1-14-19. It is also called heaven, Genesis 1:8). This means that God created a world with two heavens the heavens where God dwells, and the visible heavens of outer space. When we add this to our picture of the three-story house, we see that the attic is divided into two sections. With this in mind, we can compare the order of the universe to the map of the earth as follows. World, heaven, firmament, earth, sea. Earth, land of Eden, garden, land to east, outlying lands. We have already looked at some places in the Bible that compare the earth to the land, that is, the land of Palestine where Israel lives. We have also seen that the sea pictures the Gentile world outside of Israel. How Eden and the garden match with the two heavens isn't obvious yet, but we'll get to that in the next chapter. This picture implies that Adam's highest achievement will be to move from the garden into the land of Eden. He was not created to serve in the garden only, but to rule in the land. We have learned already that the three-story house is mentioned in many passages of Scripture, and the same is true of the Garden of Eden. After the fall, cherubim are placed at the gate of the garden, which is on the east side, Genesis 3.24. This means the entrance to the garden is toward the east. If you want to return to the garden, you have to travel west, and moving east is moving away from the garden. All through the Bible, east and west have this meaning. Cain is cast out of the land, and wanders in Nob, which is east of Eden. Genesis 4:16. Lot moves east and settles near Sodom, Genesis 13:11. When Israel enters the land from Egypt, they circle around to Moab and cross the Jordan from the east. This shows that entering the land flowing with milk and honey is like returning to the Garden of Eden. Later, when Israel goes into exile, they are taken to the east, away from the land, and to return, they travel west. In the New Testament, the wise men come from east to west, seeking the garden and Jesus, the real tree of life, Matthew 2, 1. The garden is on a mountain. The river that runs into the garden comes from the land of Eden and then flows through the garden, Genesis two ten. Eden is on higher ground than the garden, but since the water runs from the garden to outlying lands, the garden, too, is a high place. Ezekiel states this plainly. He prophesies against Tyre describing the prince of Tyre as an Adam who is in the garden of God, verse 13, on the holy mountain of God, verse 14. Throughout the Bible, mountains and hills are places where God meets with man. During the time between the collapse of the tabernacle and the building of the temple, Samuel conducts worship in Ramah, which means high place. See 1 Samuel 7 and 9. David brings the ark to Jerusalem and sets it in a tent on Mount Zion. And later the Lord instructs Solomon to build his temple on a mountain in Jerusalem. Every time God meets with man on a mountain, it is a return to the garden. Adam has a job in the world, to subdue and rule it. In Genesis two, he is given a job in the garden. According to Genesis two fifteen, he is to guard and work the garden. Through much of the Old Testament, these words describe the work of priests. Priests are called to guard the Lord's house. See Numbers 1 Eight And the service of worship is often described using the same Hebrew word found in Genesis 2.15, Exodus twenty five, Numbers 8.15, Deuteronomy 7.4, and 16. Adam's job is not only to build for God in the world, but also to serve God as priest in the garden. When God divides the earth into a garden and the world outside, he is pointing to two jobs of Adam, king and priest. In the garden, Adam meets with God and worships him, In the world, Adam is to rule and subdue. Water and trees, a man and woman on a mountaintop. These features of the garden come up again and again later in the Bible. Throughout Genesis, the patriarchs, the forefathers of Israel, meet their wives by wells in oases. A servant from Abraham goes to the city of Nahor and finds a wife for Isaac, while waiting by a well to water his camels, 24.10. Jacob flees from the wrath of Esau and meets Rachel coming to get water from a well at Haran. 29:1-12. Moses fights off the shepherds who attack Jethro's daughters at a well in Midian and ends up marrying one of those daughters. Exodus 2:16-22. These are all garden scenes with a man and a woman and animals at a well. This shows us that the patriarchs are new Adams with their wives new Eves. They will be fruitful and multiply. Rule and subdue. This scene reappears in the New Testament when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well and discusses marriage with her, John 4. Jesus is the new Jacob and the new Moses, but also the last Adam, inviting Samaritans and Gentiles into the garden and offering them the water of life. For this same reason, we find the patriarchs preoccupied with digging wells. Isaac has to reopen wells of water that the Philistines stop up. Genesis twenty six eighteen 18-22. When he digs new wells, the herdsmen of Gerar contend about the water, so he moves to Sitna, where there is another quarrel. Finally, they dig a third well, and here there is no dispute, which leads Isaac to say, now we can be fruitful in the land. Fruitful reminds us of the command to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, 26-28. Isaac has to dig wells because he and his animals and his family need water. But digging wells is also a sign that Isaac is like a new Adam who seeks for a well-watered place in the land, a place where he can be fruitful and multiply. Though Adam is created good and given every privilege and blessing, he sins by taking the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam is allowed to eat from the tree of life, but he prefers to reach out for the tree that the Lord has forbidden. Adam's sin occurs in the garden, and it is a failure having to do with his priestly task. Called to guard the garden, Adam lets in a serpent who tempts Eve while he stands by, watching. Genesis 3.6 Called to serve God in the garden, he listens to the voice of Satan. Because of this, Adam and Eve are driven from the garden and cherubim are set up to prevent their return. Genesis 3.24 All through the Old Testament, no man was ever able to return to the garden. Adam messes up the world not just for himself, but for everyone who follows him. But God doesn't leave mankind in that condition. Right away, God promises to send the seed of the woman, who will crush the serpent's head, and lead God's people back into the garden, Genesis 3.15. This is the first promise of a Savior in the Bible, and it shows us that the Savior will be a great warrior who will be victorious over Satan. But God does not keep that promise right away. The rest of the Old Testament is all about what God does to prepare for the coming of the seed of the woman. Adam's sin is not the only sin that we find in the early chapters of Genesis. Cain kills his brother in the field, and because of his sin, he is cast out of the land and forced to wander and Nob to the east of Eden, Genesis 4.16. Genesis 4-5 through 5 trace the generations of Cain and Seth, a history that ends with the world full of wickedness, Genesis 6.5. Evil fills the world because the sons of God intermarry with the daughters of men, Genesis 6.2. The sons of God are the descendants of Seth, the faithful believers who fall into sin by marrying the women who have descended from Cain. The Lord responds by reversing the creation, flooding it with water to return it to its original condition, Genesis 1-2. Thus, Genesis 3-6 record a series of falls, moving from the garden to the land to the world. Sin and death are spread until the three areas of the original creation are spoiled and therefore have to be wiped away place, garden, sinner, Adam, sin, eats fruit, judgment, cast out of garden, place, land, sinner, Cain, sin, kills brother, judgment, cast out of land, place, world, sinner, sons of God, sin, marry unbelievers, judgment, cast out of world, flood. Of course, the Lord preserves Noah and his sons during the flood and then sends them out into a new creation. Noah is like a new Adam. Like Adam, he is told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 9.1 Yahweh promises that Noah will have successful dominion over the animals. Genesis 9.2 And forbids him to eat blood. Genesis 9.3-4 Yet Noah also receives authority beyond Adam's. The Lord gives Noah permission to execute murderers. 9.5 Nine five through six, and instead of being given a garden that the Lord has planted, Noah plants his own vineyard garden. Nine twenty. In the last episode of Noah's story, we see him drinking wine and taking rest in his tent. Nine twenty through twenty one. Noah, whose name means bringer of rest, has brought the world from violence to Sabbath peace. After the three falls and the ruin of the whole earth, God has given man a new start. But the stories of Adam, Cain, and the sons of God make us wonder, how long will it last? Review questions. 1. What does it mean for Adam to be the image of God? 2. What does subdue mean? What is Adam supposed to subdue? What is the result supposed to be? 3. Describe the map of the original creation in Genesis 2. 4. In what part of the land of Eden is the garden? Why is this significant? 5. How do we know that the garden was on a mountain? Give some examples of how this appears later in the Bible. 6. What is Adam's job in the garden? 7. In what ways is Adam's sin a failure to be a priest? 8. What is the difference between Cain's sin and Adam's? Between Cain's sin and the sin of the sons of God? 9. Explain how the flood is a reversal of creation. 10. How is Noah a new Adam? In what ways does Noah advance beyond Adam? Thought questions. Read Ephesians one through 21-23. Notice how Paul refers to Genesis 1, 26-28. What is Paul telling us about Jesus? 2. Read Revelation 21-22. How is the city similar to the Garden of Eden? How does it differ? What does this tell us about the direction of history? 3. How is the Song of Solomon related to the creation of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2? See Song of Solomon 4, 12-16, 5, 1, 6, 2. 4. Hebrews 5:14 speaks of the mature, who have their senses trained to know good and evil. How does this verse help us to understand the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 2? 5. Consider how the story of Israel in Judges, Kings, and Ezra Nehemiah moves through the three areas described in Genesis 2 garden and worship, land and brother, world and unbelievers. Between Babel and Bethel, Genesis 11 through 12, 17, and 35. As the Apostle Peter teaches, The flood is the watershed between one world and another. It brings an end to the world that was formed out of water and by water and starts a new heavens and earth, 2 Peter 3, 5-7. In the baptism of the flood, the world dies and rises again, 1 Peter 3, 18-22. But the story of the world that then was sets the pattern for the history that follows. Just as sin ruined the world before the flood, so sin ruins the new world. Yet, where sin is great, God's love and mercy is greater. When the new world is ruined, God immediately takes steps to set things back on track. Genesis 10 lists the 70 nations of the new world that come into being after the flood. In chapter 11, however, there is another fall of man at the Tower of Babel. The story in Genesis 11:1 1-9 follows what is called a chiastic outline, where the second half of the story matches the first half in reverse order. A. The whole earth has one language, verse 1. B. Settled there, verse 2. C. Said to one another, verse 3. D. Come let us make bricks, verse 3. E. Let us build, verse 4. F. City and tower, verse 4. G. Lord came down, verse 5. F prime, city and tower, verse 5. E prime, the man had built, verse 5. D prime, come let us confuse, verse 7. C prime, one another's speech, verse 7. B prime, scattered from there, verse 8. A prime, confused language of the whole earth, verse 9. When God makes his appearance in the central section, G, everything changes. The story of Babel focuses on the fall of one clan of Shem's descendants. Genesis was not originally divided into chapters, so in the Hebrew Bible, the story goes straight from 10.26-31 to 11.1-9. 1 Genesis 10.30 describes the journeys of the descendants of Joktan and says that they settle in the hill country of the east. A few verses later, we learn that they were journeying east, 11.2. And since it's a continuation of the same story, they means the descendants of Joktan, who have just been mentioned. Though Joktan's descendants fall at Babel, this has consequences for the whole world, confusing the lip and scattering the nations who cooperate with the project. Just as the sons of Seth fall into sin with the daughters of Cain, Genesis 6, 1-4, so here a faithful line of descendants, the line of Shem, joins with Nimrod, Genesis 10:10) to rebel and bring ruin to the world. In Genesis 12, however, the Lord calls another Shemite, this time a member of the clan of Eber whose seed will bring together the nations divided at Babel. The Shemites who assemble at Babel want to build a tower that will not only become famous throughout the world, but will also connect heaven and earth. Babel's tower, in other words, is a temple. And Babylonian books describe the building of a great tower, Esagil, which means tower with its top in the sky, as a dwelling for Babylonian gods. Though in the east, in the land of exile from God's presence, The children of Joktan are trying to reestablish the garden. But this house for the gods is built in rebellion. The men of Babel want to reach to heaven and make a name for themselves, not exalt the name of Yahweh. Besides, they disobey God's command to fill the earth. They want to stay put, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. God's response to this rebellion is funny. Verse 5 says, Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower the tower that reaches to the sky, is so far from heaven that the Lord has to come down to see it. Seeing in scripture often means making a judgment, Genesis 1, 4, 12, 18, etc., Psalm eleven four. When the Lord draws near to see, he is inspecting the tower and deciding whether or not it will stand. Their reason for building the tower is to avoid being scattered, but the end result is that they are scattered more widely than they were to begin with. They want to make a name for themselves, but the name they receive is Babel, which means confusion. The name Babylon means gate of God, but the Old Testament name for these efforts to establish a gate to heaven is confusion and folly. The ruins of the tower in the city of Babel loom in the background throughout the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God calls Abraham immediately after the fall at Babel, and there are a number of connections between Babel and Abram. The story of Babel is part of the genealogy of the Shemites, which begins in Genesis 10-21 and resumes in eleven ten. Abraham comes at the end of this genealogy, eleven twenty seven 27 through 32 The line of Shem takes a detour through Babel, but it ends with Abram. God's promises to Abram also reflect back on the story of Babel. The Babylonites intend to achieve a great name, but Yahweh tells Abram that he will make his name great, 12-2. At Babel, the Shemites hope to unite the whole world, but it is Abram who will be the father of a great nation. The true united nations is found among the descendants of Abram. God makes two great promises to Abram, and both are connected with the promise that Abram's seed will build the true Babylon. First, God promises Abram a seed. This is the promise of a son, and it is a promise that seems impossible to fulfill because of Sarai's barrenness and her advancing age. Most of the stories about Abram have to do with his hope for a child. Lot is initially Abram's heir, and so their relationship has to do with the promise of a seed, Genesis 13-14, 18-19. through Abram's decision to have a son by Hagar is also a response to the Lord's delay in fulfilling the promise of a son, Genesis 16. When Isaac is finally born, the Lord commands Abram to offer him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah, Genesis 22. And Abram obeys, believing that God will raise Isaac from the dead. Hebrews 11 19. The promise of the seed is part of God's response to the fall of the nations at Babel. Though Abram is not given the task of building God's house, having a son is the first stage in building God's house. In 2 Samuel 7, as we'll see in chapter 4, the Lord answers David's plan to build a house by saying that he intends to build a house for David. What he means is that he will build David's family into the royal family of Israel. The house that God builds for David is a house made of people. Then the people that God makes into a house turn around and build a house for God. This is the story we find in the history of Israel. The Lord builds a great nation in Egypt and then sets them to work building his house. And this is the same pattern we find in the stories of Abram. God promises to build a house for Abram, a large household that includes many nations. In light of the events at Babel, This promise implies that Abram's household will one day build the Lord's house. More specifically, the Lord promises that the son will build the house. Another way to say this is to notice that God promises to multiply Abram's house. Remember that Adam and later Noah are commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The same words are repeated when the Lord appears to Abram and other patriarchs, but instead of being a command to be fruitful, it is a promise, I will make you fruitful. Adam is told to build himself a large household but the Lord promises Abram the head of a new human race that he will build a house for him Genesis 17:2 and 6 The other great promise to Abram is the promise of land Abram begins his life in Ur but is called to come to Canaan When he arrives the Lord appears to him to say to your seed I will give this land Genesis 12:7 Later God tells Abram that this promise will be delayed Know for certain that your seed will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here. To your seed I have given this land. Genesis 15, 13-14, 16 and 18. Israel's land is going to be a new Eden, a land flowing with milk and honey. And within the land, Israel is going to build a new garden, the temple, the house of God. It's no accident that Abram came to the land of Ur, a pagan city to the east. Traveling west from Ur, Abram is making his way back toward the garden. Circumcision, the sign of the covenant that God gives to Abram, Genesis 17, brings these two promises together. Yahweh has promised land, but here it is called the land of Canaan for the first time, 17.8. The Lord has promised an abundant seed, but here Abram is father not only of a great nation, 12:2, but also of a multitude of nations, 17:5. He will father a new set of 70 nations, Genesis 10, to replace the nations that have fallen at Babel. Abram has been told that descendants will come from him, but here it is emphasized that kings shall come from you, 17:6. Yahweh has already entered into a covenant with Abram, but here the covenant is extended to Abram's descendants after you throughout your generations seventeen nine. from this point on abram is a new man with a new name abram has been replaced by abraham and sarai by sarah fittingly the passage centers on circumcision as the sign of the covenant circumcision is a cut in the flesh and it speaks of the cutting off of the old in order to receive the new circumcision cuts off abram and replaces him with abraham having been cut off from the flesh Abraham is ready to father the child of the promise. See Galatians 4. But it is not just Abraham who begins a new stage of life here. His entire household is involved. Circumcision marks out the house of Abraham as the house in covenant with Yahweh, Seventeen, twelve 12-13. Circumcision shows that the flesh is powerless and points to the need for God to be the giver of the seed. Only God can open Sarah's womb and fulfill his promise to multiply Abraham's seed. Circumcision shows that Yahweh alone can build the house of Abraham. Promises of seed and land are also given to Isaac and Jacob, but in the case of Jacob, the connection of land to the house of God is clearer. As Jacob is leaving the land to get away from Esau, he stops at a certain place to spend the night and sees a vision of a ladder reaching to heaven. Genesis 28. Like the Tower of Babel that is to reach its head into heaven. Genesis 11.4 the head of the ladder that Jacob sees reaches to heaven, twenty eight twelve. Jacob's ladder is the true tower that connects heaven and earth, but it is built by Yahweh, not by Jacob. Furthermore, there is an emphasis on the word place in Genesis twenty-eight, verses eleven, sixteen through seventeen and nineteen. Initially the location is an undisclosed place, but the Lord's appearance there turns it into a holy place. This reminds us of the emphasis of Genesis eleven on the Shemite's settlement there, as the place on the plains of Shinar. When Jacob awakes from his dream, he calls the place the Gate of Heaven, 2817, which is reminiscent of the Babylonian Gate of God. By the end of the story, Jacob has changed the name of the place from Luz to Bethel, which means House of God. At Bethel, the Lord reveals his answer to Babel. He will build a way to connect earth and heaven. He will build it in the land and he will build it through Jacob's seed, 28, 13-14. From the house of God, Jacob moves on to Haran, where he works for his uncle Laban for over a decade. Between Genesis 28 and 32, the story of Jacob follows a roughly chiastic storyline. A. Jacob fleeing land, God appears at Bethel, 28, 10-12. B. Jacob arrives at Haran, marries, 29, 1-30. through 30. C. Jacob's children, 29 31 through 30 24 c prime jacob's flocks 30 25 through 43 b prime jacob leaves haran 31 1 through 55 and a prime jacob re-entering the land god appears at peniel 32 1 through 32 here the multiplication and prosperity of jacob's house is central to the story though oppressed and mistreated by laban jacob nonetheless receives the lord's blessing and returns from his exile in two large companies. The Lord is keeping the promise of Bethel. He is building Jacob a house. Jacob sets out from Bethel, and in returning to the land, he returns to Bethel. When the Lord appears at Bethel the first time, Jacob vows to return a tenth to the Lord, if the Lord will be with him. In the closing chapter of the Jacob story, Genesis 35, he makes his way back to Bethel to fulfill the vow, verses 1-4. through At Bethel, Jacob again sets up a pillar and anoints it, and the Lord promises again to bless him. Most of Jacob's life takes place between these two visits at Bethel. As we have seen, the early chapters of Genesis tell us of three sins, one in the garden, one in the land, and one in the world. Adam's sin is against God, Cain's is a sin against his brother, and the sons of God sin in their relations to unbelievers in the world. The stories of the patriarchs focus on these same three areas, but the patriarchs, instead of sinning, act rightly in each area. Abraham shows that he is a righteous man by being willing to sacrifice his son to the Lord. He is faithful as a priest in the garden. Jacob's life is taken up with conflicts with his relatives, his brother Esau and his uncle Laban. Joseph, whose story comes at the end of Genesis, is faithful even when he goes as a slave into a foreign land and among unbelievers in Egypt. For this reason, the story of Joseph is a good ending to the Book of Beginnings. Joseph is the true son of God who resists the daughters of men, Genesis 39, 7-12. It is a good ending for another reason, too. The Book of Genesis begins with God telling Adam to subdue and rule the earth, and it ends with Joseph, a man who rules the vast empire of Egypt. Joseph is a picture of what Adam is supposed to become. Everywhere he goes, he serves faithfully and ends up running the show. Even as a young man, his father gives him authority over his brothers and puts a robe on him as a sign of his position, Genesis 372 3 His brothers strip off his robe, but once he is in Potiphar's house, he again begins to rule, Genesis 39one 6 Again, his robe is stripped off, but this time by Potiphar's wife. After two years in prison, Joseph is called upon to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand, and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put the gold necklace around his neck, and he had him ride in the second chariot, and they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee! And he set him over all the land of Egypt, Genesis forty-one, forty-two through 43 Joseph is not naked as Adam was when he was created joseph is like the last adam clothed like a king and ruling over the gentiles like all great kings in the bible joseph rules in order to serve when he becomes the second ruler of egypt he does not use his power to do selfish things instead he uses his power to give bread to the world he does not take revenge against the brothers who mistreated him instead he feeds them too and invites them to come live with him in egypt here too joseph is like the last adam who is raised up above all kings and rulers to give himself as the bread of life to hungry sinners. At the very end of Genesis, Joseph is no longer a ruler in Egypt. The very last verse tells us, Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Genesis fifty twenty-six. Great as Joseph is, his life is not the end of the story of Israel. It is only the beginning. Time moves on. Joseph is not just the end of the book of beginnings, he is the beginning of a new story. That's the story of Exodus, which we'll look at in the next chapter. Review questions. 1. Who is involved in building the Tower of Babel? What are they trying to build? 2. Explain how the story of the Tower of Babel is put together. What happens in the middle of the story? 3. How is God's call to Abram connected to the story of Babel? 4. What are the main promises given to Abram? How are these connected with the story of Babel? How are they connected with Adam? 5. What is circumcision? What does it mean? 6. Explain the connections between Jacob's dream and the Tower of Babel. 7. What does Jacob call the place where he sees the dream? Why is this important? 8. What happens while Jacob is in Haran working for Laban? Nine. Explain how the three patriarchs are related to the three sins early in the book of Genesis. 10. Why is it fitting for Joseph's story to be at the end of Genesis? Thought questions. 1. Yahweh tells Abram that his seed will be like the stars. Genesis 15.5. In light of the three-story house, what is the Lord telling Abram? 2. Where does Abraham go to sacrifice Isaac? Genesis two two compared to Second Chronicles 3.1. What is the significance of this connection? 3. Read Genesis 25.23. In light of what the Lord says here, evaluate Isaac's preference for Esau. See also 25.34. 26.34-35. 34 4. Judah becomes one of the most prominent sons of Jacob, yet he is not the firstborn, but the fourth son of Leah. Why? Look at Genesis 34 and 35.22. 5. Genesis 38 is a story about Judah, yet it comes in the middle of the section of Genesis that is dealing with Joseph. Why? Look at Genesis 39, 7-18, and 44, 14-34. If you enjoyed this episode, follow along as we read through A House for My Name by Peter J. Lighthart. A new chapter of this audiobook will be posted each week in the Bible section on the Canon app.